Let's ask God to open our hearts up to his word and to prepare our hearts for celebrating communion together. So here we are, Lord. We're, I mean, our hearts are all over the maps. There's things I'm sure that some here are very burdened about and things that maybe some are distracted by, uh, discouraged by, preoccupied with. But Lord, we ask that you'd come and by a powerful work of your spirit that you would clear away everything else and let us see you, Jesus Christ, in your word so that we would love you and that we would trust you and worship you and remember all that you've done for us in your death on the cross. I pray that none of us would leave here unchanged today, but that you would pour out your heart-changing work. So meet us now, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Good. Well, in Luke's gospel, we read that one evening, uh, a Pharisee had Jesus over for dinner, and while they were there eating dinner, there was a woman who was known to be a sinner, and uh, she somehow got into the Pharisee's house and came into the room that Jesus and the Pharisee were in where they were eating, and she fell down at Jesus' feet, weeping for sorrow over her sin and for joy over his forgiveness. You can see this, total intrusion. And the Pharisee's offended, right? He didn't ever have sinners in his house. <laughs> okay, that's what he thought. All right, very offended. Jesus welcomed her because here she was seeing her sin, sorrowing, weeping over her sin, seeing the forgiveness that Jesus makes available, trusting him, thanking him, loving him for his forgiveness. And so Jesus said to the Pharisee, he said, you know, those who think they only need to be forgiven a little, just love me a little. But those who see that they need to be forgiven much, love me much. So the principle there is that the more clearly we can see how much we've sinned against God, the more clearly we can see what Jesus did in paying for our much sin on the cross, the more clearly we can see how much we've been forgiven by Jesus Christ, the more we will love him. That's the principle. So here's the question. How much do you love Jesus? Honestly. How much do you love him? How much do you desire to know him? How much do you seek him? How earnestly do you seek him? How much do you fight ferociously against the things that draw you from him? How often do you say what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 16, even so, come Lord Jesus, I long to see you face to face. How much do you Love Jesus. Communion is a time to love Jesus. That's what communion's all about. It's a time where we come and we love Jesus for his death on the cross and we, we love him for bearing our sins in his body and paying for our sins. We love him for the forgiveness that he's brought to us. That, that's what communion is all about. It's, it's a time to love Jesus. So to have communion 
be meaningful, our love for Christ needs to grow. And Isaiah 57 will help us with that. So let's turn to Isaiah chapter 57. And let's see what Isaiah is going to say to us this morning. Now, if you need a Bible, we'd like you all to have one so that you can study this with us. We're passionate about studying the scriptures here at Mercy Hill Church. And so in the Bibles we're passing out, Isaiah 57 is on page 616. Just go ahead and raise your hand real high. Mike over here. Jed, good. Don't be bashful. I want you all to be able to study this passage with us. And in this chapter, actually, we're going to start in a couple of verses at the end of chapter 56. So in, from 56 verse 9 through 57 verse 13, Isaiah talks about the wickedness of our sin. How sinful we were before God saved us. So the first part is the wickedness of our sin. And then in 57, 14 through 21, we're going to see the wonder of God's salvation. The wickedness of our sin, then the wonder of our salvation, and all this to prepare our hearts for, for celebrating communion. So let's start with the wickedness of our sin. Here, Isaiah shows Israel and shows us how sinful we were before God saved us. And if you're not yet at a place where you're trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord and treasure, then what this section is going to show you is, is how desperately you need to be forgiven by Jesus Christ. And how you could leave here this morning forgiven for the wickedness of your sin. So let's take a look at what Isaiah says. Three things in this section. First, he says that before we were saved, we ignored eternity. Okay, that's the point of Isaiah 56, 9 through the first two verses of chapter 57. At the end of chapter 56, in verse 12, he says this is true of Israel's leaders. Look at what he says. Come, they say, he's speaking of Israel's leaders. Come, they say, let us, let me get wine, let's fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond all measure. So Israel's leaders repeatedly got drunk, and they acted like life would go on forever. Tomorrow will be just like today. And the next day and the next day, life will just go on forever. And they ignored the fact that one day they would die and face God's judgment. They just didn't think about that. They ignored eternity. And that's also true of all of Israel. And it was, wasn't it true of you before God saved you? Look at verses 1 and 2. Look at how Isaiah describes it here. The rest of us. Verse 1. It says, The righteous man perishes... And no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away, while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. What he's talking about here is those in Israel who were righteous, by faith alone, Genesis fifteen six, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. So those in Israel who were righteous by faith, they died in peace on their deathbeds. They were at peace because they knew they were forgiven by God's mercy. They knew that when they faced God's judgment, he would say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. They knew that their eternity was secure. Joy was coming. They were not going to face God's judgment forever. Heaven was there. They were not going to face hell. They knew that. But everybody else in Israel did not lay that to heart. The righteous man perishes, but no one lays that to heart. No one thinks about eternity. No one thinks about judgment. No one thinks about death. No one thinks about where things are going. And haven't we all done that? 
I mean, think about before you were saved. Haven't we all just ignored eternity? I mean, just just ponder this. Just let this impact you. You are going to be consciously alive forever. Forever. The person sitting next to you. Awesome. They're going to be alive consciously forever. It's an amazing thing to stop and think about. They're going to be alive together. They're going to be alive forever. You're going to be alive forever, either facing God's judgment in hell or enjoying God's glory, His majesty, His love forever. And God has shown us how to not face hell and how to enjoy Him forever in heaven. He's, he's shown us, but we've ignored that. Right? We, we just have ignored eternity and we've lived like every day was just going to be the same, like life on earth was going to continue forever. Isn't that how we've lived? We can still slip into living that way now, can't we? I mean, just stop and think about it. Compared to eternity, your 80 or 90 years of life are just like tiny. I mean, think about it. 80 or 90 years here, followed by millions and billions and trillions of years. You will be consciously alive forever. But the tragedy is instead of thinking about eternity and God and my sin and judgment, we just, you know, play solitaire on the computer, right? Or we, you know, we work harder or we collect seashells, you know, right? We've all ignored eternity. So can you feel the wickedness of that? That here God has made plain how we can be forgiven by him and know him forever in eternity and we just ignore it. Second, Isaiah says we mocked God. That's the point of verses 3 through 5 of chapter 57. Look at what he says. But you draw near, sons of the sorceress. That's, That's an idiom for describing people who practice sorcery. Offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman, people who practice adultery. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree. The false pagan religions then would have prostitutes in these groves, in their temples and in these groves of oak trees where you would, you would go and you'd have sex with them as an act of supposed worship. End of verse 5. Who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks. So Israel mocked God. Try to think of just how to, how to describe this. I mean, picture what had happened before all the nations... God had freed Israel from Egypt. Part of the Red Sea, she went across, provided for her through 40 years in the wilderness, and then brought her into the promised land before all the nations. And then God stood before Israel, before all the nations, and said, you've seen my faithfulness, my mercy, my goodness, my love. Now trust me. No sorcery. No adultery. No murder. God said this for all the nations. And what does Israel do? They turn their backs on God and they sacrifice chickens before these little rocks mocking God. 
They turned their backs on God and committed adultery, men trooping off to these oak groves and these pagan temples where they would have sex with the temple prostitutes, mocking God before all the nations. And the most heartbreaking to me is they would turn their back on God and they would take their babies and lay them in the red hot arms of this God, Moloch, where they'd be burned alive, mocking God. I mean, so there's many reasons why that should just give us a great sense of revulsion. But can you feel how before the nations, Israel mocked God? And we've done the same too. I mean, think about before you were saved. So before before us, before everyone on the earth, God has revealed himself through creation. We, we see his wisdom, his love, his goodness, his mercy. He's revealed himself to us through Jesus coming. God came to earth in the person of Jesus, showing us his reality, his power, his goodness, his love. God has revealed himself clearly to us through the scriptures. So God has revealed himself clearly to every one of us. And, and we've turned our backs on God just turned our backs on him and we've loved money. <laughs> Mocking God. Okay, we've turned our backs on God and we've, we've been racist in our hearts and our feelings and our pride. Mocking God, who loves every nation, tongue, and tribe, created every nation, tongue, and tribe. We've turned our backs on God and clicked on porn. Mocking God. So we, with Israel, have mocked God. Just let that rest on you before you were saved. It just struck me this week thinking about my life before I was saved. I mocked God uh, before many, many, many people. Third, uh, Isaiah says we deserted God. That's the point of verses 6 through 13. Here's the picture. God created you so that you could enjoy him as your all-satisfying treasure. That's why you're here. He made you so that you could have the joy of knowing him, worshiping him, delighting in him, walking with him, trusting him. He made you so that you would be his, so that he would be your treasure. Or as the Old Testament puts it, so that he would be your portion and so he would be your lot. Look at what we've done, verse 6. Isaiah 57, verse 6. Among the smooth stones of the valley, he's talking about idols there, is your portion. We've chosen idols as our portion. They, they are your lots. These idols. To them you've poured out a drink offering. You've brought a grain offering. Shall I relent? That is, relent of my wrath for these things? Should I pull my wrath back because you've done this? God says. So Israel deserted God, bowed down to idols. This, in verse 8, she, we're gonna read, she, she puts monuments, little idol monuments in her home and then they go, they, they commit adultery with the, in, the, in the temples, with the temple prostitutes. Look at verse 8. Behind the door and the doorpost you've set up your memorial. For deserting me That's where I got that phrase. Deserting me, you've uncovered your bed. You've gone up to it. These things even happen on on mountaintops. You've made it wide. You've made a covenant for yourself with them. You've loved their bed and you've looked on nakedness. So God created us so that he could be our all-satisfying treasure. And we, before God saved us, 
we deserted him, turned our backs on him, and we, we pursued fame, um, we pursued church attendance. It sounds kind of strange, but anybody go to church before you were saved thinking that that was doing it for you? Yes, that's a way to turn our backs on God and desert him. We pursued lust. We've turned our backs on God and we've deserted him. Our all-satisfying treasure, the one we were created to know and walk with and love. Okay, so can you feel how wicked we were? The, The point here is, Lord, help us to, it's painful to feel this, But it's so important because he who thinks he's been forgiven little will love little. But he who sees we've been forgiven much will love much. And to see that you've been forgiven much, you need to see that you've sinned much. So just let it sink in. We ignored eternity. We mocked God. And we've deserted God. Okay, now, here's what's amazing. What does God do in response? The wonder of God's salvation. Isaiah makes four points about God's salvation. First, he says God is merciful. I mean, get the picture. Here's, here's God in the heavens, and he looks down upon us. Here, here's us, here's you, all of us, all of humanity. So he looks down upon heaven, and he sees us, and we're ignoring eternity, and we're mocking God, and we're deserting God. Okay, and And God is just and righteous and holy, and so what rightly wells up in God is wrath. It's wrong. must be punished, and that's right. That's what wells up in God's heart. But look at what God decides to do, verse 14. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. So here, boom, we got verses 1 through 13, our sinfulness in 14, God does something good for his people. Now, what is he doing when he removes every obstruction from his people's way? You know, if you've been with us studying Isaiah, that God takes his promises to take his people from Babylon, bring them back to, to Jerusalem. But the commentators say, that's, that's probably not what he's talking about here because the rest of this passage doesn't talk about returning to Babylon, it talks about salvation. So when God says he is going to remove every obstruction from his people's way, he's talking about removing every obstruction that keeps you from turning back to God. He looks down upon humanity and he says, I'm going to save a vast multitude that no one can count from every nation, tongue, and tribe, and I'm going to remove every obstruction that would keep them from coming back to me. I'm going to bring them back to me. This eternity-ignoring, God-mocking, God-deserting people. I'm going to save a vast multitude that no one can count. I'm going to bring them back to me. Now, why would God do that? I mean, we deserve punishment. Why would would he do that? Notice the first word in verse 15, the word for. My dad likes to say this is one of the most important words in the Bible, the word for. Because here's the reason. You've got to notice fours. Verse 15, for... Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Now just stop there. This is, this is an amazing description of God. God is high and lifted up. You've got the universe, the Milky Way, the galaxies, all of creation, and God is above it all, supreme over all. Just step back and just 
feel that. He is high and lifted up. He inhabits eternity. He has always been and always will be. His name is holy. He is infinitely perfect, holy, righteous. And here's what he says, this God who is so exalted. I dwell in the high and holy place, yes, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So why does God say, I'm going to save a vast multitude that no one can count. I'm going to bring them back to me. It's because God is exalted as he is. He has this burning passion in his heart. This, this is so important to understand about God. This burning passion in his heart to do astonishing good for completely undeserving people. I love that song we sang earlier about how we are, we're unworthy of his love. God loves to love the unworthy. God loves to do amazing, breathtaking good for people who deserve only his judgment and his punishments. That's why God says what he does in verse 14. So Isaiah starts by helping us see that God is merciful. It's the first part of the wonder of God's salvation. Okay, but God's merciful, but still there's a problem. We've sinned against God. And in his justice, he rightly responds with wrath. And something has to happen to his anger if he's going to be able to save. Before God can come and revive us and remove every obstruction and bring us back to himself, something has to happen to his anger. That's the second point Isaiah wants to make. God removes his anger. Look at verse 16. He says, for I will not contend forever. I'm not going to be angry forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit and man would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. What God is saying is this. I rightfully could respond with anger. And if I responded with, with justice and righteousness and the anger that's appropriate, all of my creation would be destroyed. Everyone would be in hell forever. It's destroyed. I don't want to do that, God says. Okay? I don't want to do that. I love to show mercy to completely undeserving people. But he can't just ignore his anger. God's just. The punishment must be punished. I mean, the punishment must be levied. Uh, the crime must have there be a punishment. Their justice must be done. And that's the point of verse 17, just to help us see the justice of God's anger against us. Look at verse 17. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, okay, he's just bringing out one specific sin here, unjust gain, but that's just... Uh, stands for all the other kinds of sins we commit because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, of his gossip, of his pride, of his racism, of his neglect of the poor, of his turning his back on God. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. So get the picture. Because of our sin, how many of you have ever experienced this before you were saved? When, when God struck you in the sense of bringing a trial in your life, in his mercy, to, to wake you up and to shake you up to what's really going on. Anybody experience God striking you in, in that loving, merciful way before he saved you to, to jolt you into, okay, what's really going on here? Okay? That's what he said. But notice our response. He says, I struck him, I hid my face and was angry, but he went on backsliding in the way of his own hearts. So because of our sin, God is justly angry. Even when he struck us 
and brought trials to us to wake us up in his mercy, our response was just to keep right on backsliding in the way of our own hearts. That's what humanity did. Whatever God would do, just kept on ignoring eternity, mocking God, deserting God, keeping on in the backsliding of our hearts. That's what our hearts do. We aren't just sinners who sin once in a while. We, we were sinners by nature and by choice. And we just kept turning away from God. That's what we did. So can you feel how just it would be for God to pour his anger out upon us? That's, that's what Isaiah wants us to feel. But now look at the beginning of verse 18. God says, I've seen his ways, his backsliding ways, your backsliding ways, but I will heal him. Heal him. Now, now wait a minute. In verse 17, he was angry. Right? Now in verse 18, he's healing. So somehow between verse 17 and 18, his anger went somewhere. His anger was removed somehow between verses 17 and 18. Where did his anger go? Now, Isaiah doesn't tell us in this passage. You know why? Because he's already told us. You know where? Chapter 53. Okay, let's turn there. I want you to see where God's anger went. See, God doesn't just sweep his anger under the rug. He doesn't just say, let's let bygones be bygones. God is just. He's perfectly righteous and just and holy. So you've got to get this. Every sin in the universe will be justly punished. Either by you, the person suffering forever in hell, or by Isaiah 53, starting verse 2. Speaking of the, the servant who was going to come, the Messiah, Jesus. Verse 2, for he... Jesus grew up before him, God the Father, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, didn't come in king's robes. He was born to a poor family, laid in a manger amongst cows. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Underline those three words, smitten by God. There's the wrath from God being poured out upon Jesus, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Remember verse 18 of chapter 57? I've seen his backsliding ways. I will heal him. With his stripes we are healed. Isaiah 53, 5. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned 
everyone to his own way, ignoring eternity, mocking God, deserting God, backsliding continuously. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So where did God's just righteous wrath against sin, my sin, go? Your sin. Where did his just wrath against sin go? It was poured out upon Jesus as he suffered on the cross. Now, let's try to get, get this more clear. In picture, here's you. If you're trusting Jesus, here's what's happened. Here's you, and here's Jesus over here. Jesus is the Son of God, my, my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Fully God, fully man. The Father loves him. Perfect. And then here's you. Here's me. Ignoring eternity, mocking God, deserting God, continually backsliding in my ways. And God has just wrath that I deserve poured out upon me. God is just. He must punish sin. He must punish wrongdoing. So here's this just wrath. And instead of pouring it out upon me, he directs it towards Jesus and pours it out upon him. The wrath that I deserve was poured out upon Jesus. And so can, can you see Jesus' love? This is one of the most clear pictures of Jesus' love for you and that he would want the Father to pour out a hell's worth of punishment upon him so that you could be saved. And see the love of the Father, that he would be willing to pour out a hell's worth of punishment upon his own son, Jesus, so that you could be saved. I mean, the, the screaming of Jesus on the cross and the weeping of the Father in heaven are love for you. Love for you. That's what's going on here. Now back to chapter 57. The third thing Isaiah points out is that because then God has removed his anger from those he would save, he then changes our hearts. Verses 18 and 19. I have seen his ways, his backsliding ways, but I will heal him. That is, I'm going to heal his heart so he stops backsliding. I'm going to heal his heart so he, she, repents of his, her sin and, and trusts in Jesus. Keep reading. I will lead him and bring him to myself. I'm going to restore comfort to him and his mourners, his fellow believers, creating the fruit of the lips. His language is going to change. Instead of boasting, and slander and cursing, there's going to be praising and Abba, Father, and kindness and mercy. Peace, peace to the far and to the near. Gentiles, Israel, Jews, says the Lord, and I will heal him. So if you're trusting Jesus Christ now, here's what's happened. 2,000 years ago, God took the, the wrath that you deserve and he poured it out upon his son and Jesus suffered on the cross in payment for your sin. And then at some point in time in your life, you, you, you may, maybe you can pick out the time, maybe not, maybe it's more gradual, but at some point in your life then God brought his power upon you 
and he healed your backsliding heart. He took out the heart of stone, gave you a brand new heart of flesh. So you repented of your sin. You you saw, what am I doing? God, would you forgive me? The cross, yes, no, yes. And then you trust Jesus Christ. And the moment you trust him, all your sins are forgiven. You're brought into relationship with God. You're born again. You're saved. You're redeemed. There's one more thing Isaiah wants to say. Fourth, fourth point here under God's salvation. God mercifully warns us. I struggle with what the point of verses 20 and 21 were, but read them and, and, and see if my take makes sense to you. It says, but the wicked are like the tossing sea. For it cannot be quiet. Their hearts tossing, cannot be quiet. Its waters toss up mire and dirt. The wicked keep backsliding. The wicked keep ignoring eternity. They're, they're mocking God. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. End of verse 19, peace, peace to the far and the near, those whose hearts God changes, saves through Christ. But for those who continue in wickedness, there's no peace. So here's the point. If we continue in wickedness, we're not saved. We've not experienced God's saving work. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect. No one here in this room is perfect, right? But the huge difference between those who are saved and those who are not saved is the saved, when we commit wickedness, we are, we're broken before the Lord for it. We repent before the Lord for it. We say, we're sorry, help us. I hate that. I don't ever want to pursue that again. Change me, Father. Jesus, come and help me. Cleanse me. Wash me. And the wicked just continue on in wickedness. And so if, if, you're, if you're wicked, don't misunderstand what Isaiah is saying here. If you're, if you're pursuing wickedness without repenting, without confessing, then there's no peace for you and you're going to face God's judgment forever. Because remember, every sin, every wickedness in the universe will be punished. God is absolutely just, either in the person in hell forever or the horrors of the cross where Jesus was punished for the sins of those God would save. Do you see the love of Christ? Do you see how much you've needed to be forgiven? It's so easy for us just in the busyness of life to forget, right? But just reflect. You, me, we ignored eternity. We mocked God. We deserted God. We just continued backsliding in our hearts. And God, in amazing mercy, took all of the punishment we deserved and he poured it out upon his son. And he punished his son. We need to be forgiven much. Are you in touch with that? Let me just tell you, none of you sees how clearly you need or how much you need to be forgiven for. Okay? I don't. None of us sees that clearly enough. We all need to be forgiven for far more than we're aware of. Okay, but maybe the Lord would just give us a little bit more of a sense of that now. A little bit more, it's like, oh, yes. And God doesn't want to leave you, though, oh, yes. He wants then to have you see the cross, and have you see Jesus, and have you see you're forgiven. Yes, you've needed to be forgiven much. Through Christ, by trusting him, you've been forgiven much. Oh, this really hit me Friday afternoon. I was just discouraged about some stuff, and I was out walking by the creek near our house, and it just came over me like a wave. 
I mean, just I saw my sin, I saw justice, I saw hell, and I saw forgiveness, and I saw heaven. I said, I mean, you, you know that happens. It's just like this is what everything is about. Whatever else is going on, minor. This is major, right? Forgiveness for all my sins. Heaven, God's love, his presence. So let's prepare our hearts for communion now. See, communion is a time to love Jesus. It's time to love Jesus. Can the band come on up? But I just want to walk you through this. It's a time to love Jesus. And so as we're coming to partake of communion, I trust this has already been happening in our hearts, but pray even more right now. Lord, help me to see how much I've needed to be forgiven. Help me to see that more clearly so that I can see what you've done in the cross in paying for that much that I've needed to be forgiven for. So that I can see that because of you, Jesus Christ, I've been forgiven much so that I can love much. I'm praying for me and I'm praying for everyone here at Mercy Hill that we can leave here today loving Jesus Christ more. Now here's how we're going to do communion this morning. A little bit different than what we've done in the past. Dave's going to lead us in, in three songs. And during any time during those three songs, you can come on up, table on your right, table on your left. Take the bread and the cup. And then you can go back to your seat or you can kneel somewhere. But this is going to be a time for you individually between you and the Father through Jesus to see how much you've needed to be forgiven, to just confess afresh any new sins he makes you aware of, to see his death on the cross as payment for all of your sins, past, present, and future, and to see the love of Christ for you on the cross so that you would love him much. It's a time for you to be before Jesus. So, Partake of communion at any time when you're ready. I'm not going to come back up here and lead us all together in partaking of communion. This is the difference. We want this to be a time where you, before the Lord, are doing business, seeing your sin, seeing how much you've needed to be forgiven, seeing the cross, how much he's paid for how much you've needed to be forgiven, and then seeing that you've received much forgiveness so that you would love Jesus and say, Jesus, I love you. I want to swear allegiance to you afresh right now. I want to turn away from any sin you're making me aware of. Wash me, cleanse me, forgive me anew, pour your love into my heart anew. Jesus Christ, I am yours now and forever. But between you and him, and then, and then we'll, I'll come up a little bit later and, and, and close the service. But, so again, come on up to the tables and just you partake whenever you are ready. It's between you and the Lord. It could be during the first song, it could be during the second song, it could be during the third song, whenever you're ready, between you and the Lord. So let's pray. Lord, we need your work. We need the powerful work of your precious Holy Spirit now in our hearts. Father, come. We plead with you that you would break through the the crustiness that Ian was talking about earlier, break through the pride that we're prone to so that we can see our sinfulness and so that we can see how much we've needed to be forgiven and so we can see how much, Jesus, you suffered to forgive us so we can see how much we have been forgiven and love you, Jesus Christ, more than ever before. So bring your power upon us now. Lord, move upon us. Move through this place, I pray. Communion is not a time for sinless people, I like to say. It's a time for people who recognize that they're sinful 
and who come to Jesus to trust him as Savior and as Lord and as treasure. And if that's you, then come and partake of communion this morning. Move upon us now, Lord, I pray, for the glory of your name. Amen. I'm thinking of Galatians chapter 2 where Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us. So live by faith in him. Trust him. Trust him. Trust him. And then Jesus said, freely you've received, freely give. You've received his grace freely, now give. Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to love? Who do you need to go talk to and get things worked out with? Who is he calling you to share the gospel with? Freely you've received, freely give. We have received lavish grace from you, Jesus Christ. Forgiveness, love, your heart changing work, your promises to keep us from stumbling through to eternity, to work everything out for good, to provide every need and give wisdom for every decision and strengthen every weakness and comfort every sadness. We've received lavish grace through the cross and we thank you. And thank you for meeting us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.